Welcome to Occupied, your fortnightly podcast for all things occupation and occupational therapy. Returning here with part two of our conversation with Michelle Perryman and Dr. Jesse Wilson, exploring everything from academia and moving into it from a clinical position right through to supporting our students and some expectations of a PhD. I think we do try and push our sort of social perspective into a try and make it fit into the little medical model puzzle piece hole just because that's what everyone around us is doing and we just assume that that's what we need to do to fit in kind of thing when as soon as we do we knock the edges off what we've actually got to offer and we severely limit our unique uh benefit that we can have for people in all all aspects of healthcare we lose our uniqueness we lose what makes us ot's but yeah okay yeah we fit in with other professions but what at what cost yeah i think too um i think an important thing too that often i used to overlook was the fact that if we're looking at these students that we are educating to go out and change the face of practice and to advocate for time in order to do research and we are providing them more and more skills in terms of generating research questions completing literature review being evidence-based practitioners is we we have to sort of really be honest about how scary that is for our students, but also how scary it is for us moving from clinicians into an academic circle where you move from being an expert at an area, let's say you're not even an expert, but you feel confident and confident as a clinician. And then all of a sudden it's like you're learning to walk again, learning a different language and being in an academic space. It's not an easy, it's not an easy thing to do for, I don't think any of us. And I think as students, one of the big barriers that always comes comes up to the forefront is they feel like they shouldn't have a voice because they are students and they're graduating and they're trying to get their head around what it is to be an OT. And I find that even more challenging with a master's program, which is only two years. So in Australia, the benefit of having those students for four years at an undergraduate level is they develop an identity of what it is to become and be an occupational therapist. In two years, that is very, very hard to do because I can speak for myself as leaving the profession and going, you know, like, or going out, I guess, into the profession, leaving school, you were still grappling with what is occupational therapy. And when you don't have a clear identity of what an occupational therapist is, you easily slip into the medical model. You easily become influenced to be more like the physio or more like the doctor or more like whoever it is that you're working with. So to then generate occupation-focused research questions comes, I think, with time where you start to struggle between, wait a minute, I'm feeling confident that I'm no longer just a student or whatever I am, you know, coming out into the practice, but I feel like I'm seeing conflict between what I learned in school and what I see in practice. And that is when maybe it's first, maybe for some people, it's the first few months, maybe it's the first few years, whatever it is, that those questions start to come to the forefront of their mind. You know, they start to say, wait a minute, 
And for some people it won't, but for a lot of people it will. They'll start to say, wait a minute, this isn't what I thought yeah. occupational therapy was. This wasn't what I thought a social model of disability look like. I, I don't feel like I know who I am in this space. And I think that that's what drives the clinicians, like you said, rightly so, that all want to change the face of the profession and make it better, for the better, I guess. But it's a scary place to navigate. And even if we give all of the skills and all of that, it's, it's almost empowering our students to have a voice when they first graduate, to be able to to feel adequate in that space and to negotiate it because as a as a grown person and a professional and working for you know however many years in practice that was hard for me let alone as a student who's just fresh and new and still trying to sort of wrap their head around what they're doing and why they're doing it so it's a it's a hard space I think yeah I also think you know um I kind of found it's it's not just students too, like it's, like it's established clinicians, you know, we're in these policies and in these departments that are run by nurses, that are run by, you know, um, physiotherapists. And it's like, and I'm not saying that these professions are bad because they're not, they're fantastic and they offer us a lot um, and a lot of opportunity, but they have different philosophies. And it's looking at, you know, working inside that philosophy, but also working with your own philosophy. And I always explain to students, look, when you first become a student, uh, when, you, when you're learning to become an occupational therapist, and when you first go into practice, you will be more concerned with process. You'll be mm -hmm. concerned with process, client, and then theory. Okay? But what we are looking at is to get you to is client, theory, then process. So the forefront of your reasoning should be your client. But at the moment, you're currently looking at process, and that's okay because... You know, if we look at how people think and how they theorize perceptions, it's through sensory and understanding, isn't it? It's using that sensory to conceptualize our understanding. And that's what I say. I'm like, so you're conceptualizing through this process that I'm telling you is the best way to do something. Why is it? And I always ask them why, and I ask them to argue with me. And at first, they find it really difficult, you know, because I'm the expert, you know, with those bunny ears in my hands kind of thing. But I'm not the expert because everything is a theory. So everything is one person's perspective or a number of people's perspective. I'm not saying it's the way forward. What's a different way? And it's asking those questions, you know, and it's, and I, and sometimes they're quite thrown that I'm like, why? At every single question that they ask, uh, that they, ans um, they answer, and then I'm like, why? So it's kind of like quite frustrating as well, but it gives them that, that confidence to fight and to argue with me. Um, and I always find that when, um, when I first went in, you know, into, so before I studied occupational therapy, I actually read about the theory quite a lot because I took kind of a year to get myself um, up together with it. And I knew a lot. I, I'm, I'm like one of these people that if you tell me that's something I'm interested in, I can kind of just remember it and it's just there. I'm quite lucky um, in some ways. And um, so I knew a, a significant amount of theory when I first went into the course but when they, um, but when I was in clinical practice or like I was learning to be an occupational therapist, sometimes I would have to stump that back. I felt I would have to stump that back, not to make the occupational therapist feel like they were teaching, you know, somebody that knew too much and that they wouldn't, I wouldn't learn enough of the skill, if that makes sense. Um, because I didn't know anything about the actual practice of occupational therapy. 
And then I felt the same way when I first went into clinical practice. I felt that I wasn't able to express what I knew or an alternative way of thinking. Um, but now I've come into academia, it's a whole different ballgame. So the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee have been so open to hearing ideas. And I've been like, whoa, you want to know? You know, like, and they actually ask me my opinion and they go out of their way to listen and, and to let, help me, you know, to learn about what my understanding is and what their understanding is and also apply that within practice, within academic practice. And it's been like a breath of fresh air in some ways because it's like I don't feel that my, my opinion and my values do not count anymore. They actually count. And um, I think that's another thing that's a, possibly a cultural difference as well from England because I'm not always confident within England to actually do that too. So it's like it's, I don't know, it's, it's a lot different. And, I, and that's one thing I'm very much enjoying about academia is learning about how I present information and how it would be useful and, you know, and to discover its purpose, essentially. Um, so that's been quite, quite empowering, really, within academia. And that's why I do encourage, you know, to if when you are doing a PhD is to teach in, in some ways alongside it or get an opportunity to do some guest lectures because of that reason. Um, I don't know. I don't know what you guys feel. I just felt like it was yeah, such I I I agree. I mean, even when I was working clinically, when I moved back to Townsville, like I would go in and I would do a couple sort of guest lecture spots uh, each year on different topics, usually around mental health. And I think I used to do one around like um, social media use for CBD, like the stuff that I knew fairly well. Uh, and I think even that helped me in the sort of transition. I've never, well, not never, but in my adult life, I've never really been afraid of public speaking or anything like that. And uh, as you are more than well aware, I can be quite opinionated on certain things. <laughs> so I'm never afraid to share said opinions if people are interested in hearing. Um, but I, 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 what you said before resonated with me when you were talking about um, like the the students being a little bit sort of taken aback when you were like, are you with me? Because that's one thing that some of the students, some of the students have sort of taken the mickey out of me this semester because they'll ask me a question. And apparently my most common answer is it depends. So I'm like, <laughs> I can't just give you the concrete answer because it'll depend on context and situation and all these other things. I like, um, yeah, that, what you just said then was it, it kind of made me laugh a little bit because I'm like, that's exactly what I'm finding over here as well is they are quite often expecting. And, and I wonder, like, to me, that's a very medical model approach or like prescriptive kind of thing. Like, this is what's happening. This is the answer. And OT doesn't fit that. No. we We, we don't. OT is very looking, and it sounds really cheesy and really, uh, you know, token, but we look at, we need to look at things on a broader scale. We need to look more holistically because that's how we see the world. Like, we can't just say, this is the issue, here's an answer, off you go. Um, and some professions can do that because that's the way they're built and that's the way they should work. Me and Jesse were talking when we recorded a podcast a little while ago about the 
oh, what was the physio's name? The blog that you what? Oh, the the critical the critical physio. Yeah, who and I've had a read had a read of a few of these things, and he's he's like, well, you know, I here's an issue, I fix it. Like that's my job. I don't necessarily have to be so holistic, because this is where he sees his profession as fitting into the healthcare context. It doesn't necessarily have to look at everything else because it's his little niche is specialized. Whereas our little niche is quite broad, but on a different level to the medical model. We look at things from a social perspective. Yeah, definitely. I also think, you know, like people such as, I believe it was um, Sue Baptiste, actually. She spoke at the Royal college of occupational therapy conference maybe i think it was around 2015-16 and she said to us about being kind to people such as our students and actually accepting that they've come from academia where the new knowledge is um and our new occupational therapists essentially as well sorry so we, she was basically saying they've come from academia they've come from a place that has got new knowledge and yet they're coming into your profession and they're saying to you, the people that have been there for a while that have already conceptualized their idea of practice, this is something new. This is a new direction to go with. And yet they get put down. They get treated like they know nothing. And that blows my mind because it's like, I understand that no one in life likes to be told that they're doing something wrong or to be told that they need to do something differently or they could do something differently because they've already conceptualized their understanding. But for occupational therapists, we need to be open. We need to be accepting and we need to be more aware to be able to adapt the way, you know, that we do practice. And essentially because we're such a young profession, we need to accept these people. We need to accept students in. We need to accept even so our, our assistants and our technicians and, you know, in the UK, assistants and technicians are not actually seen as a separate, they're seen as like quite separate from the occupational therapy profession yeah, at times. Yeah. The same here. In my personal experience, it's like they don't get seen as professionals in some ways. And I know that they might not have a degree, but who cares? Some of these people have come from years and years of practice and been taught by lots of different occupational therapists compared to, you know, like us that were uh, that are trained and we go to four different placements four or five different placements depending on where you are in the world of course um but we do a thousand hours according to world federation of ot you know and they have a lot more experience but yet we disregard sometimes their perspective um, and that was, and I, I found that when i was working on the kit unit here because we had a, a rehab assistant who sat operationally under the ot and I was, when did I go there? I was probably five years out of uni and she'd been in that role for like 25 years. Like there was nothing she didn't know about that ward, how it ran, who did what. And I think, I, I think most people had treated her well, but I'm, I, it just blew my mind that even operationally, she was under me. And I'm like, dude, I'm I'm the new kid. Like, I'm learning off you. Yeah. Uh, like, yeah, you, can't, you can't put a price. You can't put a degree. You can't put some letters after your name that are going to replace 25 years of experience on a ward. 
Like, I don't care what degree you've got, 25 years experience, is good. you're going to learn more from that than anything. I think that that resonates well, too, because even extending it beyond that, I always think of the very same thing in terms of who are the people that are um, the holders of knowledge, I guess, so to speak. And, and they come in a variety of forms. But most importantly for me, I think, in terms of my area of research and practice are parents. So, you know, um, they are the holders of knowledge about their family, their children. And they are the people that see us as professionals or experts, very much similar maybe to an OTA in that sort of position. They're often placed in a situation where they're under us or they're there to listen to us or to be the sort of recipients of care and knowledge. And they're the ones that know the day-to-day routines. They're the ones that understand the complexities of home life and of things. And I find that if we are open, like Michelle, you said, to um, new ways of doing, of knowing from our students, from our OT or PTAs, from our parents and families, from our colleagues. I think that it makes us better people. And the one question, and I didn't come up with this, so I'm not taking responsibility. And for the life of me, I've been trying to think who it was. I feel like it might have been Susan or Liz from work there at JCU, Brock. Mm. So if it is them, tell them. I use it all the time, but uh, to generate I wonder questions instead of answers. So I find that very helpful. When you say to the students, Michelle, the, well, why? Um, I say, well, instead of let's jumping to process answers, like we'll do range of motion and manual muscle testing or whatever you want to do, I want you instead of coming up with an answer to generate I wonder questions to help unpick or unpack the complexities of this case or this scenario so that we can better understand it in its entirety versus in it's only its parts, I guess. So I use that in teaching, but I also use that in my own research to help if I don't understand or I'm trying to shape my thinking around a particular methodology or method, I wonder why I would choose that or I wonder why I'm drawn to visual methods or I wonder why I would choose the how, the process, how does that reflect on me as a clinician or my way of knowing or understanding myself in the world? Or I think that that's a really helpful um, tool because it really forces us instead of uh, to move into a place, I guess, of um, curiosity versus answers, which I think is... um, I think that touches on what Michelle was talking about before, about being really aware of your own values and you know, what's going to appeal to you and what you're going to be really interested in and why. Like, that's something I've been really driving into my students this semester is about self-awareness. So, every time I've been teaching them about a lot of different uh, interventions that we've used in mental health, but they've been doing them on themselves and doing them on each other. And my sort of party line with that is I don't, I'm not big on You know, you pretend to be the client and you pretend to be the clinician. I'm like, no, you just no pretending. You be you because then you're going to get an understanding of how you react in these situations and the kinds of information that we're looking for. So, like we did, you know, solution-focused stuff and we do values assessments and, and occupational interviewing and that kind of stuff. But then they get to know, and I've got to know them. Like I've had conversations with other staff members. Like I got to know them really well just by teaching them the stuff that you know. If they end up working in mental health, is stuff that they're going to do with people every day. 
So that level of self-awareness to me is like we did sensory mod uh, last week, this week. Um, so they're very, they should be now aware of their own sensory preferences and that kind of stuff. So they need to, I've always said like when you walk into a room with a client, you need to know exactly where you are. Like not like in the room, but like emotionally, intellectually, like you need to be so self-aware because anything that's off with you or different with you is going to transfer into that therapeutic relationship. So that self-awareness, I think, is something that's massively important. And I think it's it, it's so often ignored or pushed under the table because, oh, you're having a bad day, so but I need to ignore that because I need to get this work done. I'm like, well, you can't ignore that because it's going to affect the outcome. Yeah. I also think, you know, recently I might be a bit biased here because I've been doing a lot of kind of reading around it and I'm presenting a course in it um, soon, but it, it comes under the term cultural humility, you know, is understanding our values and also being open to others and underneath that concept comes like things such as self-awareness. It comes as things as um, cultural exposure. And it's not culture in terms of race, particularly. Mm. It's culture in terms of age. It's culture in terms of gender, sexual orientation, health professionals' philosophy, academic philosophy. It's so many di- – like culture mm. doesn't just span across race. And it's I more, think more a contextual thing. Yeah, we kind of mm. seem to focus just on that thing because it is a big conversation and I understand that it's very important. Um, and especially coming from a white privileged area, you know, like I, I get it. But it's kind of, you know, it's, it's understanding that culture is contextual, but in so many different ways. Um, mm. And I've like, you know, when you were talking about with students, Brock, um, and how you're saying to them, be yourself within this moment. I don't want you to pretend to be this particular client. Mm. I also agree because one of the great things that happened for me when I went into academia was I wrote my teaching philosophy and how I learn and how I kind of, you know, support others to learn. And I kind of come across the concept that teaching is emotive and active. Mm. It has to have some sort of relationship to the way that you value things, obviously, like occupation does. It is an occupation because mm. um, everything's an occupation, <laughs> really. Um, and I just found that, you know, I would, I would teach. I, there's no purpose for me to stand in front of a class and just kind of spill some information at them and expect them to kind of give us a textbook, you know, reply. Yeah, yeah. How I find it was I I ended up bringing my, you know, my lectures for this fall into more workshops. So during, I would give you some information, then I would ask you to put it into action. But I'd also ask ask you to relate it to some purpose in your life or other person's life or see other people do something, you know. And I just found that it seems more powerful in that way that they kind of get it. And I used the cower model more recently to... Uh, with um, students learning about mental health in occupational therapy. And I asked them to reflect on their position as occupational therapists, as, uh, as occupational therapy students going into occupational therapists and look at the contexts that surrounds them that might restrict them and how they would do goals. And afterwards, I've had students actually, well, a professor came to me and she said, look, I had this student in this interview to do this further certificate. And she reflected on the, the class that you did because you allowed her to think from her perspective 
what would restrict her to be able to do this extra course. And it just kind of, it just showed me that, you know, that emotive approach really does kind of seem to sink in. And I don't know if it's just me because I'm being biased. That's my approach, but I'm just wondering, is that, is that the same across the board? Do you guys find that if you use that type of, you know, understanding or do you think, I kind of think the other flip side of it is it can be quite risky in terms of asking people to consistently think about themselves and how does that make them, you know, insecure and affect their self-efficacy. It Um, can be, but I think it, there's a risk in, there's a risk in everything. mm. And to me, I think doing it or creating a safe space to be able to explore those kinds of what, may or may not be a sensitive thing for someone and a lot of the stuff i do with them is individual so if it does touch a nerve then it's up to them and that's another reason why i always preface especially if we're doing interviewing and they're talking to each other or that kind of stuff you don't have the same as if you were being interviewed by a health clinician you don't have to say anything that you don't want to say it would be the same as our clients our clients don't say what they don't want to say I, I'm not expecting you to open up just because, say, I'm the lecturer or just because I'm the therapist. You don't want to say it. You don't say it exactly the same as you would in normal life. You know, people go to the doctor and they don't disclose things because they don't want to or they are embarrassed or whatever the reason is. I think there's value even in that because if there's something that comes up for them that they go, I don't really want to bring that up in class even being aware of that is important because that sort of stuff, like clients, especially I know working in mental health, they they get to know you as well. And if there's something, whatever it may be in your past or your psyche or your schemas, whatever it is that touches a nerve, it, even if they accidentally do it, You need to know that, okay, well, I'm not comfortable talking about this. If it comes up, how am I going to handle it? Like, you can prepare for it. I think avoiding it is probably a big mistake. I'm, and this may just be me, my, and how I deal with things. I'm very sort of head on. Uh, and I'm usually dive right in and then I'll work out what happens with whatever comes out of it. I think for me in exploring yourself, that to me just makes more sense rather than like, oh, I better not touch on this just in case something comes out of it. And I've had students that will, uh, even this semester, will go, oh, you know, I'm not really sure about, say, whatever activity we're doing. I'm like, that's fine. You can sit back, watch, see what how other people do it so you still get the exposure to whatever therapy it is. Uh, and quite often the few people that have done that have joined in anyway once they've gone okay no it doesn't seem as bad as I was expecting but I think even that allowing them the space and showing them it's a safe space for them to even just reflect within themselves about why didn't I want to or why did I feel uncomfortable um, is an important lesson in itself and that's completely aside from what you're actually teaching in the classroom um it's just that sort of next level of self-awareness of yeah because i'm just conscious about you know like the more recent there's a lot of talk i I know in the uk and the usa about the students mental health and how they cope with the stress 
and the ability, you know, and I, and mm. I know that. I've seen a lot of that too online. So mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of that online as well, like about yeah, the, the US, US students. I'm aware of it and I'm just like, I'm just kind of putting it out there. That's how I personally look at things. And then I'm just wondering, I just, well, it was a I wonder moment, Jesse. Then I was like, actually, now I'm thinking of it on the flip side, talking to you guys. Is that something we need to consider in academia? Do we need to, like, you know, during this session, I actually, there was two other occupational therapists there, and I said, look, we're going to actually do a flex on yourself. I understand that this can be difficult for some people, but there are therapists in the room, and I want you to then go to your support networks if you have any further troubles, you know, contact us or whatever. So there was, you know, that open perspective. I said, don't share what you don't want to share. That's also fine. Do what you feel that's comfortable. But now I'm looking on the flip side of it, and I understand that we have to do this to, for self-awareness within practice. You know, we have to teach students this. But I'm wondering how that affects the stress levels. And is it an implication or is it a support network to be able to learn new um, approaches to be able to support yourself? So I'm just kind of, yeah, I was just, as a, I wanted yeah. then, that wasn't even part of the end of no, discussion. No, that's all right. Good fun. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I feel like I'm a bit, um, I, I really do. I think it's so important to teach sort of critical self reflection and reflexivity um, to our students. And, and Western does that quite well. And we have a lot of, um, academics that are very invested in that, especially from a research and, and uh, application kind of perspective. I, I'm in an interesting position coming back to Canada is I'm still finding my feet in terms of how to practically enact some of those conversations within a didactic teaching situation. Um, so we're going through a curriculum renewal at the moment where we're looking at the pedagogy that we use, the way in which we teach, but it's quite different from coming from the Australian system where you had workshops and hands-on labs that were practically set aside with smaller group conversations. I currently don't have that um, situation or this past year didn't. So how to facilitate engagement in deep conversation and reflexivity in a large group situation with 60 students that is facilitated, supported, enacted in a very purposeful way is still a real challenge for me on how the importance is there at the forefront of my mind. There's no doubt about that and I would. I just don't think that I probably did it as well as what I possibly could do it. And I'm still trying to sort out the way in which through conversations with other academics on how best to do that moving forward to allow that to happen. Um, Cause it, it is a challenge to do, I think in terms of opening up. Cause I feel as though currently in the situation from conversations with students, and this is coming from now not being in an academic advisor position at JCU I was. So I had the opportunity to speak to students about stressors in their lives from caring for family members through to holding down full-time jobs to families, to things is that a lot of the students come now to me with stress over grades and marks and assignment due dates, not on critical self-reflection and importance and role within the profession. So that shift, and it's not the student's fault, it's not saying that, it's saying that I'm possibly not hitting on that deeper level of critical self-reflection and reflexivity that will allow them the resi- or enable them the resilience of when they go into practice to have 
a deeper sense of purpose, but it's more or less the stress and the mental health comes from expectations. And those are externally located expectations that are probably internalized around grades, marks, advantages over other students, assignment due dates, rubrics, and so on. So it's an interesting, because I, I feel as though that was a real shock for me, you know, like I dev didn't, yeah, students cared about marks and stuff before, but I feel as though it's a growing intensity. And I don't know how to, to shift that because I feel like once, once we move to that deeper level, like you said, Michelle, of critical reflexivity on purpose and motivation behind engaging in the profession, the stress is refocused or in a different way versus away from the external stressors of marks. And I think I'm in a, a fairly unique position and probably a beneficial position with regards to all this stuff in that I'm the course that I'm teaching is a mental health related course. So mm. a lot of the interventions that I get to do are mental health related and looking at values and looking at, you know, interventions that allow them to build resilience and that kind of stuff. So I, it's the stuff that I do with clients with regards to mental health. So I'm hoping that, this kind of interventions and these kind of thought patterns that they're learning throughout the course will also help them in managing their own stresses and managing their own mental health because we're not teaching it. Well, I'm trying not to teach it from a perspective of, um, you know, diagnostic mental health. I'm trying to teach it from a wellness point of view in that we all have mental health and these are the kinds of things that we need to do to maintain it, whether you're at the severe end or whether like you're a uni student and you've got exam stress and that kind of stuff. It's the same interventions, just on a different scale in a lot of cases. So I'm hoping that a lot of the things that I'm teaching them can carry over. Or they, they're able to utilize themselves as well. Yeah, I think mm -hmm. also like there was a big cultural difference in that, like I've seen from the UK to the USA as well. You know, the UK system is all public, whereas the US system is between public and private. And there is a significant amount of competition in terms of the grades that you get and the jobs that you're going to get afterwards and where you actually studied in some ways. Because, you know, the, the value of the place that you studied in the UK is uh, in the USA is quite high. Um, like I'm particularly at R1 University, which is a, like the top level research universities over there. And, um, and the students that are in our course are absolutely like they're amazing. They are really amazing and it just blows my mind in terms of understanding what these grades particularly mean because you know the grade at the end of the day I also associate with it, if you can write something if you can talk about it, it doesn't make mean that you can actually practice it do you know what I mean like in actual clinical practice and I just kind of think about you know I think as a new a new generation of students, isn't it? It's a lot different these days. It's harder to get jobs. It's a different economy, massively different. Um, and also, you know, like what we were saying earlier about being PhD students going into academia, but also looking for a research kind of faculty role, it's harder for us now too. So it's more stress, you know, on us to kind of consider, hold up, I now need to do my PhD. As a woman, personally, I, I, I want to have a family at some point, you know, and also, I now need to start publishing and I need to teach at the same time. And I, you know, like what you did, Jesse, like you had so much to do 
and then you have like all these extra bits to do to be able to become you know the researcher that you want to be and it's like now I'm trying to consider it from the I'm wondering again from the student perspective do they feel that pressure is what we feel too Mm -hmm. yeah that's a good how do we reduce it (laughs) because in my course in the UK they said in the masters you know they they would say to us um quite often you know you don't really get a di- you you just pass a masters you don't really get the grades and we didn't know this until the end um that you you could get past merit distinction and obviously like i did really well i got merit whatever but it's kind of like we didn't they they kind of took that away from us and said that we don't actually grade you like that so people would just be more relaxed in some ways, but obviously at the end we find out that we get these grades. I'm like, what? <laughs> but, <laughs> I'm just trying to yeah. work out, like, yeah, like because they must feel the same as what we feel in some ways. And it's like, how do we? Yeah, I don't know. And I think it's interesting conversation too from us as sort of would be probably considered early career academics or moving towards that space and some of the articles that I read as I was sort of trying to, and I read again this morning too, just thinking about other people who have gone through this experience, like the book, um, Michelle, that you had about how to do a PhD, but how to transition well or developing your occupational identity as an academic and how that works as you move from a clinician to an academic. And, you know, it's, it is very hard in terms of the expectations and, one of the main things I think that was really important that was sort of resonated through those reading those and trying to think about how do I fit in is the fact of community, right? That you have these conversations around the, the burden and the easiness of it. And, and one of the main things too is having the conversation about teaching, which tends to slip away as a refocus comes on research and productivity because I know with the institution that I'm in, which has been transparent from the start, is research and grants are what get you a position, not teaching evaluations. So you want to do well at teaching, but you don't, it doesn't matter really. You need to publish and get grants. That's what the most important thing is. And that's, that's, that's not hiding it. That's what the expectation is at this point in time. So when you say that, you feel that sort of piling up. I wonder if the conversation in terms of us as a a group of early academics who are sharing a sense of sort of becoming an academic or around that sort of idea, the conversation would look quite different for later career academics yeah what would the focus of their conversation be would it be around student mental health and well-being and developing curriculum and helping to support student learning or would it be around tri-council funding and developing your program of research and things like that I feel that just being critical of myself that's my safe place that I hold on to because I feel it most closely aligns with my clinical self is the students and feeling as though it keeps me connected to something that I felt really confident in. So I, I tend to talk more about teaching. Yeah. It kind of is like how your identity changes from what you were saying, you know, like the guy, I would be in critical practice and I'd probably be a bit more floaty, you know, and probably swear a lot more with my colleagues and stuff, (laughs) you know, and, and it does, you change your complete approach. Like, 
when I first meet people, I, I can be quite shy to begin with. And uh, like now, it, it's taken me almost a year to kind of get into myself and actually want to talk properly during meetings rather than just being asked something. And it's, it's really interesting how that dynamic switches. It's very interesting in that respect. And I completely appreciate what you're saying. I wonder, maybe this is your next podcast, Brock, to talk to, you know, established academics. Got to find some experienced academics. Yeah. yeah. I wonder what the conversation where it would go, yeah. you know, and because the stuff that I have read, limited as it is in terms of the stuff that I personally have read, one of the big things is and I thought it was interesting as our conversation navigated towards students, their health, well-being, how we could be better educators, mm. is that tie to our former selves of clinicians, right, of supporting and being in a helping profession, but being trans parent is you need to move be you know you need to also respect that part of your role is more challenging I know it is for me not speaking for for you guys or anybody else is moving into the research space yeah and it's harder to speak about that and talk about it so we cling to the former selves and haven't transitioned to the new selves of you know publishing and researching or doing your PhD or doing that kind of stuff, which is um, an interesting thing. I, I, think. I find, you know, going through the PhD at the same time, sorry about that, guys. Um, going through the PhD at the same time as teaching is allowing me to understand where the students are coming from and be like, look, I've just gone through what you're going through. This is how I did it. So, for example, I was supporting a student the other day with a reflection, reflection and reflexivity of a, a qualitative methodology. Um, and I sent her one of my supervisions for my PhD just to show her how I would structure something. And it was quite nice to be able to relate as well. You'd be like, I know what you're going through. Mm. Have you taken a break? Because right now you're probably going to be experiencing burnout. You know, you need to take at least a few days off. And that was really quite helpful. And that's one good thing about my PhD university is that, you know, at the start of the summer, I did my transfer and then they turned around and said to me, I don't want to see you till August. Like, why? Like, because you need a break. So they kind of forced you to have a break in some ways, which was really lovely. Um, but, and I know like my, one of my supervisors has literally just gone through it. Well, not, a few years back now, five, six years back, but they've just gone through that experience of doing a PhD. So I think it's like, you know, it's what you're saying is how I'm understanding it is keeping in touch with yourself, but also attempting to move forward into that next level of identity. Um, but it's, that's a, an ever wonder question. Like how do we continue to maintain and keep in touch with ourselves? And that's, what's quite great about, I don't know if it's the same in every university, but, you know, at, the, at UWM is that these faculty still teach. So they still have that level of their formal identity of maintaining that relationship with students and understanding what they're going through at that point. Um, but when does that switch and when does it, and does it fully switch and how do we maintain that level of balance? I was just thinking, do you need it to switch? Or like for me, even just hearing about, you know, that sort of stuff, I'm thinking it's more of a an evolution. Same as we learn anything, it just kind of, you build off the schemas you already have. So if we've already got these clinical schemas, then we're not going to completely like flip and change into a, you know, full research academic overnight. Like we build 
our previous experience on to whatever else we need to do to manage the current situation, which is, you know, like Jesse was saying, like research and grants and all that sort of stuff. But I don't think, I don't think it's as, yeah, I can't, I, for me anyway, I can't see me doing a full flip and not being me all well, the way no, I am or that kind of thing. But it's also keeping that value, isn't it, within the research, mm. you know, the understanding your values. Mm. I think what we're kind of talking about here in my head, I'm relating it to doing, being, becoming and belonging. And, you know, like I was saying to my mentor, uh, even just a few days ago, I said, she's, she was asking me if I wanted to kind of go into academia. And um, I was like, well, I feel like I'm starting to belong at this institute. So you never know. I just don't know yet. <laughs> you know, and it's kind of one of those things is it's, we as humans just attract to where we feel that we belong. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's just what it is in academia. And what's been quite nice about the process that I've gone through is from the beginning, the people there have made me feel like I belong. Mm. You know, like that I, like they, I, I have a voice. Mm. That I'm available to give opinion. Um, and that's probably the reason I wouldn't have stayed here for more than six months if it wasn't for that reason, I don't think. Um, but everyone's, you know, they're always open and to find a mentor was probably the best thing for me. So that's the biggest, you know, um, tip that I can give really in terms of going into academia is to find a mentor, but it's also to find peer mentors, you know, like us having this conversation and Brock and I talk a lot in respect of this, the academic world, like what are you working on? Oh, I've got to work on this. Oh my gosh, mate. I didn't know what I'm doing. You know, it's just, it's nice to have that person that is a bit lost alongside you to be able to find what you're searching for. I don't know if you had that, Jesse. Did you? Yeah, I think, um, and I do, and I do. I think that you find those people wherever you're at. Um, I had them a lot in Australia, and I was very lucky because the informal hallway discussions are the things that um, re-energize you, I think, make you feel like you said belong, but also spark new ways of thinking or knowing because you see that your input is also valued. So it's a really beautiful relationship that way. And the same thing coming back to Canada, it takes time to build those relationships again. And some of the people whom I'm working with had taught me. Um, So it's hard to move into a position where it's, you are looking up to people that you have taught you when you were an OT student to now working alongside them? And are you ever really working alongside them because you're at different stages and you know what I mean? Ages. And they would never say that they're always welcoming and kind. Um, but there are other people whom with are maybe more aligned with where you're at professionally and are more transparent and open about sharing their experiences, you know, and, and their own insecurities and their own successes. And we celebrate that together, I think, and that it does, it, it makes it all worthwhile because it's, um, yeah, it, it helps get, get you through it. And mentorship is really good and finding the balance between, I will, I'm always sort of hypercritical, I guess, because I don't have a formal mentor other than sort of my super my ex-supervisor but she's she's busy she has other things she has expectations that I'm mindful that I don't want to burden people with too much informal mentorship you know I don't have a formal mentor because I'm not on a tenure track position I'm on a contracted position so I don't have a formal 
yeah, I don't have a formal mentor. So I often try to, I seek out those people and I'm very um, thankful for them to give their time yeah. that they're not workloaded for, that they're not paid for, that they're not whatever to, to share some of um, their insights and stuff. And, and so, yeah, it's, I have that when, when you do, yeah, to, to a permanent faculty position, you do get mentorship, a more formal mentorship. Um, but I always find the informal mentorship, if you find the right people, is the most fruitful, I think. Yeah, like, so I have that too. So my mentor isn't, she's not formal. Um, but I always try and give back. Like, I'm always very thankful, mm -hmm. obviously, and I give back. Like, I support some of her students at the same time. You know, if, mm -hmm. if there's a skill that I have that, that she feels that students can benefit from, then she can send to me. You know, I, I'm constantly yeah. very aware, actually, even the occupational profession in general, I can honestly say and put my hands up wherever I've been or go that everyone's very accepting. And that's mm -hmm. one great thing about our profession is although the world is so big, it's so small. And what's great is that we've got the same, it's, this, it's one world, but we're the same team and we've all got the same problems in each country. You know, it might be con like different contexts, but there's the same issues that we're all kind of working on and alongside together. And although some of us might disagree on perspectives, we always take into account those perspectives regardless. Do, do you know what I mean? And that's what's been really great. Like, um, like Dr. Stoffel does not have to sit with me and hear my concerns about my research or whatever, but she does. And she always says to me, just give back. You know, she's like, I'm giving you what somebody else has given me. And, she, mm -hmm. and Dr. Stafel, you know, she's been in this career for 30, 40 years. I don't know how long. And that's come from a history of support, you know, and that's what's been great about occupational therapy is that this history um, and the values of actually why we do something is to enable and we still enable our own profession, you know, and it's just ensuring that we maintain that formal identity of ourselves like you were saying, Jesse, and bring that forward into any new knowledge that we gain. Mm -hmm. Good point. That's awesome. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't really know what else I need to talk about. <laughs> no, I... <laughs> I feel like, Brock, was there anything we missed? I don't know. I, I think we've fixed the world. <laughs> <laughs> One conversation at a time. That's it. So. Well, that's how it works. That's how it works. Yeah. So how long ago did you finish your PhD, Jesse? Is it just recent? So I, I finished, no, I finished mine in, well, I guess it was recently, I guess. I guess it would have been 2014. Oh, wow. Just before we met. Uh, yeah. So it's been a while. Um, so Jesse landed in the, finished, landed in the country, went to our national conference, and I met her at our national conference. Oh, yeah. in Melbourne. Yeah, that's cool. Just, no, hap did just happened to randomly like sit in on, or you were presenting in, a, a, in an Oxide stream and like sat in on your presentation and went, I have to find that chick. And then when I ran into her, she was with one of my old lecturers and I'm like, what the? F <laughs> <laughs> I know it was funny, wasn't it? I know it was just sort of, um, it was very lucky. It was, that was a great national conference to be able to go to one right coming into the country you know what I mean like seeing meeting some people that you've read their work and 
yeah, it was a, it was a great conference and having the opportunity to present a, a few times there was, um, yeah, it was really good. It was really good. So yeah, that's how Brock and I met. And then obviously being in Townsville and then working in Townsville, that was, um, yeah, it ended up working out really well, actually. It was just so. random because I was like, I need to find because I'd heard the presentation. I'm like, that sounds really interesting. It's like very occupation based, which is, yeah. you know, as you know, that's my wheelhouse. And yeah. then yeah. when I ran into it, you were with my one of my old lecturers and you were yeah. had just moved to Townsville. And I'm like, this is spooky. I know. I know it was meant to be. And then that's the reason too. I, I love these podcasts in terms of it too, because I have the chance to meet you then too, Michelle, because you're friends with Brock. So Brock, you know, your connections are legendary in terms of that. So it's nice. <laughs> I feel like I'm cool by association. I mean, I just sort of get to meet people through you, which I'm very uh, honored and, and lucky to do to make new friends and new connections. So um, and that's yeah. like one of the reasons why when I first started this, I'm like, and I've known for a while and I've been trying to work out what to do with it, but I'm like, I've got a very broad network that I know, I'm yeah, like, definitely. but, I, but I've got to do something with it. It's like, there's no point in just knowing people for the sake of knowing people. Like, why not allow other people to, you know, we can talk and I learn, I love narratives. I learn from narratives. I love these kinds of conversations. Like we used to have these kinds of conversations all the time when you worked here. Uh, I'm like, oh, I'll record them. <laughs> and then, you yeah, know. No, see, look, you're already defining what you're going to probably do for your PhD, at least for methodology and methods. Yeah. What, just podcast? I'll just podcast my whole Narrative. PhD. That's what you should be looking at. Yeah, for sure, with your research methods courses. Anyways, yeah. it's way farther ahead than I was with my PhD. I was laughing with a good friend of mine, Liliana, who did her PhD in uh, the University of Alberta. She's from um, Columbia. And she's now at the at Western, and she's an incredible researcher, uh, incredible quantitative researcher. So I pick her brain a lot because I would not say I'm a I'm an excellent researcher in any sort of um, genre per se, but she's an excellent quantitative researcher. And we were laughing about our PhDs and stuff, and trying to decide what we were going to do in terms of methods and methodology and how we hope nobody ever reads our PhD. <laughs> I said that. I said, I said, hopefully it's like nobody ever reads it <laughs> because it's always a guessing game and sort of moving through those spaces. I think, uh, as Michelle said, your research question will change a million times as will your approach and stuff probably for the first little bit until you find something that resonates. So maybe your podcast is giving you the, uh, the sign of what maybe you should be looking at doing for your PhD. But Definitely. Yeah. Where methods be, baby you know, focus groups even focus group narrative let's do them over zoom there you go yeah, yeah. <laughs> be a star. Be a star. i don't think they'd let me publish them <laughs> not on the podcast anyway i got all the recording equipment that's got to count for something it does it does <laughs> actually they did a good study actually brock i was reading it actually because i i had recommended articles and i briefly skimmed them ages ago and then when i sent them through about transitioning from clinician to academic yeah, yep. and there was some jot actually there was a few people um from latrobe and they ran a course actually um an online course through blogging and stuff um for early career academics and developing your occupational identity and it was through blogging 
and uh, trying to figure out ways in which that was the occupation of doing. And they framed it with Wilcox as doing being belonging and becoming actually mm. like Michelle, when you said that it was, it was funny because um, they ran three, they ran this study. It was a year long one and they ran focus groups, but they also ran these sort of professional development activities and these blogs that ran along with it in helping people move through the stages of sort of becoming an academic. And they wrote articles are around it actually, which would be, interesting have to have a look, um, see if i can find the blogs they use the method of blogging right they use the method of doing through that activity because they realize you actually have to do it so instead of jesse just talking about research you actually have to do it <laughs> <laughs> in order to become an academic so well, you have to have that emotive spin so that's what i was saying earlier with teaching you know it's um teaching well learning is emotive and active Mm-hmm. How do you really know about it unless you write it or you know reflect on it? Yeah, but it's cool. Yeah, like I've met so many people because of work or you know national incentives. You met, you met people because of yourself. I just make it up. <laughs> 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 but yeah, it's just been so great. You know, that's what I'm saying about the AT profession is it's so open and people are happy to help you because they are passionate about extending you know and giving back what they've personally had you know i think it's just such a big deal it's yeah quite a close profession yeah it's pretty mm-hmm. sweet definitely definitely awesome well we might wrap up because it's midnight oh my gosh well it was nice meeting you michelle and thanks again brock for the fun it was lovely speaking to both of you again and i will talk to you both soon okay sounds good always lovely to hear from you brockles <laughs>